Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Hear these words now from the book that we love. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the city gate, at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me, I give you the field, I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which is to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come before you this morning to this passage. Uh, It's a repetitive one. It's strange. A lot of customs and things in it, Lord, that are unfamiliar to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through it? God, I ask that my words that I've prepared um, would be glorifying to you, uh, that you would be pleased with them. I pray that they would land on the hearts and minds of your people as you choose for them to. God, we want to hear your scriptures. We want to hear your message to each of us this morning. We want to be obedient to your scriptures. And so would you speak? And we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) The Amazing Randy is a stage music, was a stage musician. He had died a few years ago. And escape artist. The Amazing Randy, his, his real full name is James Randy. He holds two Guinness World Records 
that are both kind of amazing. The first record that he holds is the length of time for being encased in a block of ice. It's not one I'm going for. 55 minutes he was encased in a block of ice. The other one that he holds is that he was sealed in a casket underwater for one hour and 44 minutes, and that broke the previous record that was held by one Harry Houdini. The Amazing Randy had a lot of other things that he did. Um, one other one that he did that was really interesting is he once escaped from a straitjacket while hanging upside down over Niagara Falls, which all sounds terrible in many ways. But amazing stage musician, amazing escape artist. And the reason that I bring up James Randi this morning is that it has been said that he would awaken each morning and he had a note in his wallet that he would take out of his wallet, destroy it, and write a new one and put it in his wallet. And what that note basically said is something along the lines of, I am James Randi, this is whatever the day's date was, and today will be the day that I die. And the reason he did that was that if he died on that day, someone would find that note in his wallet, believe that he had accurately predicted the day of his death, and he would be famous, right? His legend would be cemented. Wow, this guy did all these things, and he predicted the day of his death. What an amazing, unbelievable thing. So he did all of this. He did something daily to guarantee or attempt to guarantee his legacy as a, musician, as, as a magician and an escape artist. And my guess is that not many of you in this room ever have or currently do something so concrete or so routine to try to cement your legacy. However, inside of all of us is a deep desire to leave a legacy. All of us, in some way, desire, we long to make a lasting impact and to be remembered by others. And if you're a Christian in the room, this is true. If you're a non-Christian in the room and someone who is still exploring spiritual things, I think you know that also to be true. We all feel this longing, this desire deep in our hearts. And I believe, we believe that this is one of many core longings that are God-given. This is part of who we are as God's image bearers, as his creatures, as human beings. Some of these other core longings that are notable include intimacy. We all have a desire deep within us for attention and affirmation and affection. Another one that you could mention is beauty. We all have a desire to behold and to experience people and places and things that stir inside of us a sense of wonder or a sense of awe. We all have these deep longings. They're God-given. And the choice that we have as human beings is what to do with these longings, what to do with these desires. We can either express them in positive ways, which using the language of Paul in Galatians chapter 6 will then come out as fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those things. Or we can let these desires come out in negative ways, which to use Paul's language again, might manifest it themselves as works of the flesh. See, what we can't do is try to suppress and squash these things, but we rather direct them the way we want them to go. If we try to suppress them or try to squash them, they're going to just come out in these in sideways ways, often in negative ways. These are God-given desires, God-given longings. 
And St. Augustine, in his book, Confessions, he says this about these God-given impulses. He says, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. And so Augustine, St. Augustine, way back early in church history is saying, hey, these desires, these longings, they're there. We just have to decide what to do with them. And it's not sinful to have a desire for legacy or a desire for intimacy, a desire for beauty. What can be sinful is how we express those, especially when we do it without God. So the question is, what are we going to do with these desires? What are we going to do with these longings to leave in a legacy, to leave an impact? Uh, recently, I was listening to music, um, and I encountered and noticed this urge in a song that I was listening to. Uh, there's a Scottish singer-songwriter named Lewis Capaldi. Uh, his second album is coming out uh, really soon, and there's a couple of singles that have already been released. One of them is called Forget Me. And essentially, you know, he's like uh, mid-20-year-olds. This is a, technically like a breakup song, right? It's pretty common among singer-songwriters. It's this post-breakup song. And he can't forget the memory of his ex. He hasn't moved on from her yet. And he said this when he was asked about the song in an interview. He said, I was at a point where I was feeling pretty miserable, and she seemed like she was moving on, having the best time, thriving, and I hated it. It seemed unfair to me that she appeared happy while I was hurting, and I was fearful that she may have forgotten about me completely. So listen to these words. This is what he says. This is the chorus. He says, I'll take all the vitriol, but not the thought of you moving on, because I'm not ready to find out you know how to forget me. I'd rather hear how much you regret me and pray to God that you never met me than forget me. Now, it's true. I don't know that Louis Capaldi is a person of faith. I don't think he is. And this is a little narcissistic. It's a little self-focused. It's squishing out a little bit in the works of the flesh angle. And he's explicitly saying that he would rather have a negative long-term impact and a negative legacy, that that's preferable to not having one at all, but I think what's fascinating is that he does touch on the fact that he doesn't want to be forgotten. Even by an ex-girlfriend, there's that nagging inside of him, a longing inside of him to be remembered, to make an impact. He doesn't want to be forgotten. Our passage this morning, Genesis 23, is at the end of the Abraham narrative. If you've been following along with us in this Genesis series, we've been in it for a long time. Genesis chapter 12, where we're introduced to Abraham, or technically 11, where there's a genealogy. It was a long time ago in our series. And we're coming now to the end of this Abraham story, this arc that's been coming all the way since chapter 11, chapter 12. And so this story is one of our very last glimpses of the great father of the faith before he dies. These chapters 23, 24, 25 are sort of transitional in the storyline of Genesis. The main stuff of the Abraham story is all past. It's run its main course. The initial promise that God came, gave to Abraham, chapter 12, 1 to 4, has happened for the most part. That promise came. He's had an heir, the birth of Isaac, and a re reiteration of that promise in the previous chapter, chapter 22. And there's some chapters in between, all kinds of stuff that happens in there. 
But the main arc, the main thrust of this Abraham story has ended, and now in chapter 23, we're sort of in this transitional period where we see the baton, in some ways, being passed from Abraham to his son Isaac. See, this chapter deals with this transition of God's covenant promise to the next generation. You could say, and this is, and this is what I, how, I, how I want to phrase this with this transition, you could say on the one hand, and maybe, maybe most obviously, that, hey, chapter 23 is about the death of Abraham's wife. And then chapter 24 is about Abraham finding his son a spouse. And then chapter 25 is about Abraham's death. But if we think about this being a transition to Isaac, a transition to the next generation, you could also look at these chapters the other way around and say that, no, this chapter is about the death of Isaac's father, or mother, I'm sorry. And the next chapter is about Isaac finding his bride, and then the following chapter is about the death of Isaac's father. It's this transition going from Abraham, Sarah, and going to the next generation. And I want to say really quickly, before talking a little bit more about legacy, that the point of this text, the main point of this text, like 1A, is, is about land. First and foremost, this is about land. See, I mentioned the promise, the covenant promise that was given to Abraham, chapter 12. Abraham has left his hometown by faith, came into this land of Canaan, and he's been there about 60 years to this point left a couple times, come back a couple times, but he's been there roughly about 60 years, and he is still landless. He still doesn't own or can call any of this promised land that God has promised to give to him his own. He's been living this whole time a semi-nomadic lifestyle, living in a tent. He's a foreigner, a resident alien, and he says this himself. Look at verse 4. When he's speaking to the Hittites, he says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. He confesses, he admits to them that he's just a pilgrim. He's just there. He doesn't own anything. And again, this is a problem because land was a major part of God's covenant promise. All the way back in chapter 12, God says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And that promise is repeated throughout this Abraham story. Chapter 13 Verses 14 to 17, Abraham is separating from his nephew Lot. They're living together, and it's too crowded with all their animals and servants and families. And so they say, hey, I'll go one way, you go the other way, and they're separating. And God then says to Abraham, when he turns and goes this way, he says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then a couple chapters later, chapter 15, there's this amazing ceremony where God is solidifying this covenant, this promise that he's made with Abraham. And during that, at the end of that ceremony, he says to Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. And then he details the land, where it is, and all the people that live in the land, and including the land of the Hittites, which is where Abraham is. It's where he is standing. This should be his land, but he doesn't own any of it. And Sarah gives birth to Isaac, I mentioned already, chapter 22, and so that part of God's covenant promise that has come true, this heir has been born, but there's still no land. 
And so here, in this chapter, Abraham gets a little tiny parcel. He gets a little piece of the land. It's kind of like a down payment for the full land, for the full return of the land that God has promised that will come later. And you can see that this chapter is really about land because the author does a really interesting thing here. This is something to always look for when you read scripture. It's not always there, but he, what I call, bookends this passage. So look at verses 2 and verses 19 where there's this one, there's this explanatory phrase, that is Hebron and the land of Canaan. The author includes that both at the very beginning of the chapter, the very end of the chapter, because he's telling the readers, hey, this is Canaan. This is the promised land. That's what this is about. It's about this land, this piece of property that he's on. So the author is saying, hey, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the land promise. And it's fascinating, again, that this is about land because, and most of you, if you have a physical Bible in front of you, I was looking at my own ESV Bible this week, you know, Bibles often have like a chapter or some sort of section heading. It will say something like, your Bible probably says, the death and burial of Sarah, or Sarah's death, or something like that. But this isn't about Sarah either. It's not about Sarah, this chapter. To be sure, she's a very important figure in the biblical story. I think it's really fascinating in verse 1, it says, Sarah lived 127 years. These are the years of the life of Sarah. And as I was reading some commentaries and studying this this week, it was noted over and over that Sarah, she is the only woman in the whole biblical story whose age is recorded at the time of her death in Scripture. This almost formulaic way that this is said is used of no other woman in all of Scripture. It's used often of kings and prophets and major figures, but Sarah's the only woman that has this formula used. And so clearly she was an important person, and the author is noting that, but this section is not about her at all. Look at the the fact, and maybe you can go through and circle this later, I did that, that this week, that Sarah is only named by name, Sarah, four times in this passage, which sounds like a lot, but in that whole like, Give me some land to bury your dead. No, take this land to bury your dead. That kind of goes on for a while. There's eight times where she's referenced not by name as either his dead or my dead or your dead. It's not really about Sarah. It's not really about her. It's not really about mourning a loved one. It's not about ancient Near Eastern real estate transactions, which sound very confusing. It's not about the importance of pre-planning one's funeral arrangements. But it's about land. It's about the promised land and God's covenant to Abraham. And so I wanted to say that. This is about land. It's about God's promise. But I also think because of where this story is situated in the arc of Abraham's narrative, that this also is about legacy. It's also about Abraham's legacy. And so for the rest of our time together, I want to focus on that. See, Abraham's legacy, and this is why I believe this and why I want to talk about this. I don't think his legacy isn't just in the fact that he gets this piece of land, which is important. Again, hopefully that was made clear a second ago in my rambling. It's not just about the fact that he gets it, but it's about the way that he gets it. The attitude and the posture and the motivation, what's there, what lies underneath. It's reflective of who he was as a man, as a follower of God through all of these chapters, the whole story. This is reflective from Genesis 12 to here of who he am, these characteristics or qualities that he has. And there's three of them that stuck out to me in this passage, so I want to mention these 
briefly, quickly. And you can find these elsewhere in Abraham's story for the sake of time. I'm not going to turn. Have you turned or mentioned too many of these? But you can find them if you read through 12 to this point. Three qualities or characteristics. The first one is hospitality. The second is sacrificial obedience. And the third is selflessness. Hospitality, sacrificial obedience, and selflessness. And we'll look at these in turn real quick. Number one, Abraham was hospitable to others. This is reading between the lines a little bit in this passage, but I think it's really obvious that Abraham lived in a hospitable way with these Hittites, with these foreigners, that he had their respect, he had their trust. Verse 6, they call him a mighty prince. Something right has happened there for them to recognize this. And then you see Abraham's respect for them in verses 7 and 12, where he uh, respectfully bows to these Hittite men that are gathered at the gate. He's respectful. He's God's chosen man, and the Hittites recognize that. They recognize that there's divine blessing on this guy. But Abraham still is humble, and he's kind, and he speaks politely during this interchange. He's not demanding. He's not arrogant. He doesn't start throwing money around right off the bat and, and, and saying, well, God gave me this. You have to give it to me. No, he's kind, and he's hospitable to these outsiders well, he's the outsider, really, in this land. They're not people of faith, but he's the outsider. And this reminds me of what the Apostle Paul tells us to do as followers of Jesus, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And right now, if you're in one of our small groups, our home meetings at Liberty Collingswood, we're talking about the Christian practice of missional engagement. And in Colossians 4, this is one of the passages that I almost chose to be in one of those three lessons, but I didn't. But it's an important one for this practice of sharing and showing our faith. It's important that we are hospitable towards those that we live with, towards those that we are around. As followers of Jesus, we're called to spend quantity and quality time with our friends and neighbors and coworkers who don't know Jesus. And Abraham, he seems to have done that. He knows these men. He knows these Hittites. They know who he is, and he's lived carefully and wisely among them. He's demonstrated humility and integrity. He's been nearby to them, and he's made an impact on them with his lifestyle and who he is. And the reality is, in the ancient Near East, they would have never sold him this piece of property if that wasn't the case. They would have never let a foreigner buy a piece of property if he wasn't a man of that kind of integrity and hospitality. Rosaria Butterfield is an author. She was a former uh, tenured professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. And when she was there, she was a lesbian feminist and a very unlikely convert to Christianity. And in 1999, she, her life was radically transformed by the gospel when a friend's hospitality knocked on her door. And in her book that's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she talks about this experience and talks about her conversion and her journey from hating Christians to becoming a Christian. It started with an invitation to dinner. That's it. An invitation to dinner. And in this book, she calls Christians 
to practice what she calls radically ordinary hospitality. It can make a big impact on people who don't know Jesus. It's what authentic Christianity looks like, she would say. And so hospitality is a legacy that Abraham had, I believe, and we see a glimpse of that in this passage. You'll see it in other parts of his story. It's a legacy that Abraham had, and it's one that we can have as well. So he was hospitable. But second, Abraham was obedient to God even when it required sacrifice. He was obedient to God even when it required sacrifice. Think about this. When Sarah died, Abraham was immediately faced with a choice. Where am I going to bury my wife? I don't own any land here. What am I going to do? He could either remain in Canaan or he could go back to his homeland, right? All the way back in Genesis 12, God calls him 60 years prior. He calls him to leave where he was, Haran, or further back than that, Ur, where he grew up. He could have left and he could have gone home. He could have just been like the kid that picks up his ball at the basketball court and just takes it home and says, I'm out. I'm done. I've had enough. But he doesn't do that. He stays in the promised land, That's which is remarkable. And he secures this family burial plot in Canaan, and it displays a commitment to God's promises in the promised land. Throughout all of his life, Abraham, Abraham clung tightly to this fulfillment of God's word because he had so much faith and so much hope and so much confidence in God. And because he had that, he was willing to take risks. He was willing to sacrifice his own comfort, his own convenience, his own safety, his own security for the sake of God's promises, for the sake of following God. And we see in verses 14 and 15, there's this bargaining match that was kind of going back and forth that we read. And we see in verses 14 and 15 that ultimately Abraham ends up paying 400 shekels of silver for the cave of Machpelah in the field. And in those times, if you're not familiar, a shekel wasn't yet at this time a coin. It was a, a, a weight, and so it adds the note there that this was the weight that was common among the merchants at the time. So it's a weight, and so it's this 400 units of this weight, and, and, and scholars have said this was probably somewhere around six pounds. So six pounds of silver is a pretty good chunk. And most scholars also would agree, based on other ancient Near Eastern transactions that have been found in this area around the same time, they believe they found archaeologically, that this was, a, this was an exorbitant amount, like a totally unfair, totally unreasonable amount for this field, way far above what it was worth. And so this guy Ephron, who appears, not Zach Ephron, but this guy Ephron, you think he's being kind to Abraham, right? As you're reading it, it seems like a good guy. And he's like, oh, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels. What is that between me and you? Just bury your dead. It seems like he's being really gracious, but he's act it's actually a bargaining ploy. He's kind of ripping Abraham off here. And I think Abraham was a smart guy. He was a wealthy man. But what I find really interesting, he, Ephron doesn't ask for it explicitly, but Abraham gets the hint, and he doesn't complain about it. He just says, okay, and he just pays it. He just pays it without complaint. No price was too high for him to secure a place for his bride. As I was thinking about this passage this week and thinking about Abraham's sacrifice here, no price was too high. It made me immediately think of Jesus. 
this, this, this future descendant of Abraham, Jesus of Nazareth, he had the same sacrificial mindset. No price was too high for him either to pay for his bride, for the church. In order for him to secure redemption and adoption for his people, to be sons and daughters of God, he gave his life. Something not worth 400 shekels or six pounds of silver, but something that was priceless. And Jesus likewise did it, not begrudgingly, but willingly. No price was too high for him. He did it without complaint. And the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 12, says this, that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame of public execution. He embraced the crucifixion, quote, for the joy that was set before him. He did it out of joy. Now, purchasing this land back to Abraham is one of the very final acts of obedience in Abraham's story. This cave of Machpelah and the field in which it was located, again, just a fraction, just a piece of the promised land, just a hint of what God had in store, but yet he willingly, out of faith, sacrificed whatever he needed to to make that happen. Oswald Chambers was an early uh, 20th century evangelist and author, and he's written this. He says, The best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, but its obedience. The best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, but its obedience. And I think Abraham demonstrates for us in this passage and throughout his story. You think back to where even God calling him to leave his hometown. You think back to where God called him to sacrifice Isaac after Isaac was finally born. Hey, take this son you have, hike up on this mountain, and kill him. And Abraham began, to, he did all these things in faith. And so what Abraham did here and did in other parts of his journey as he followed God may to some look crazy, may to some look reckless, but in fact it was a deep sign of his spiritual life, of his deep trust in God. Sacrificial obedience is the legacy that we see here at the end of Abraham's story. It's a legacy that he had, and again, it's one that we can also have. Third and finally, Abraham was selfless. He was selfless. He was looking out not just for himself, right, it's the definition of selfless, I realize, but was looking out for the good of others. And I mentioned this earlier in the chapter and read a little bit that when God was giving this promise of land, there was also the promise of descendants. And all the way back in chapter 12, God said to, Ab to Abraham, to Abram at that time, I will make of you a great nation. And when the promise is repeated, that comes up again and again and again. And so we see here that Ab Abraham's selflessness and the fact that he's purchasing this cave, it was about securing a piece of God's promises that he was never really going to enjoy. It wasn't really for him. It was for others. It was for the next generation. It was for those that would come after him that were going to experience the larger fulfillment of God's promises. And we see this if you continue to read on in the book of Genesis. And I don't know if we're going to get to all these in the book. I have no long idea how long we're doing this series. That's totally up to Jim. But if we continue to go on in the book of Genesis, we will read chapter 25 that Abraham is buried here in this cave next to his wife, but then later, so is Isaac, his son, and so is his wife, Isaac's wife, Rebecca. And then after that, 
Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and then his wife, Leah. They're all laid to rest in this cave that Abraham purchased. He was looking forward. He knew that this would be for those that came after him. He knew that he wouldn't really get to enjoy it, but they would. It's kind of like sermon, Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where he's speaking to the Jews right after this amazing experience where the Holy Spirit comes. And he says, these promises are for you and your children. And Abraham knew that. He knew that these promises of God were for his children and their children and the children's children and so on and so forth. He was looking forward to others. Many of you uh, know that Jim and I, a few weeks ago, were in Oklahoma City. Um, We went there for a gathering of pastors. There were 18 uh, pastors from the Liberty Network, the Liberty Communion here in Philadelphia region. Uh, And we gathered with about 100 total pastors from around the country and around the world in Oklahoma City at a a church that we're connected to uh, in our network. And there were a group there, a handful of ministers from Liverpool, England, I'm actually having a phone call with one of them, George, uh, this week. Really great guy, great group of ministers that were there. They were wonderful to hang out with. We talked about all kinds of subjects I was, had no business talking to, like British politics and English Premier League, but I was doing my best to jump in on those things. But they were great guys. It was great to hear about their work and the ministry they're doing in Liverpool. During a group time, they were standing up in the front and they were sharing a little bit about what was going on in Liverpool. And one of the sentiments that they expressed that really stood out to us as pastors, I think all of us uh, that were there, is they, they shared about how there was a real lack of younger men and women and students in their region that had any interest in Jesus at all. And even more so, there was a real lack of even those that were following Jesus that really wanted to give their lives for other people to follow Jesus. Very few that were interested in pursuing full-time vocational ministry. And they expressed the urgency of training up that next generation of ministers and church leaders. And it was really powerful to us in the room. It was a real reminder that we have to look past the end of our own noses, right? And look beyond and look out to the next generation. And I think you see that here in Abraham. That was part of his legacy, that he looked past himself to his descendants, to those that were going to follow after him. At the end of Abraham's life, he's not living in a retirement community, right? He's not living at the beach, just picking up seashells. He's still in the game. He's still struggling. He's still striving. He's still working towards God's promises, even in the final years of his life, even right after his His wife passes, even when he is really old, like well over 100, he's still striving for the realization of God's promises, not for himself, but for those who would follow. And so selflessness for the sake of the next generation is a legacy that Abraham had, and again, it's one that we can have. And so I ask you, as we close, Liberty Church Collinswood, what do you want your legacy to be? We all will leave one, I think, in some form or fashion. It's inevitable. The choice is whether it's going to be positive or it's going to be negative or how deeply impactful or how deeply long-lasting it's going to be for those who follow. Samuel Johnson was an 18th century English writer who said this, the future is purchased at the price of vision in the present. The future is purchased 
at the price of vision in the present. So whatever you want your legacy to be, whatever you want your impact to be, you must do something about it now. It's not just going to happen, right? And I think we all know that. If you want your legacy to be about money and to be about wealth, what do you do? Well, you invest early and often when you're young. If you want your legacy to be about your career and success and recognition, you go to the best school, no matter what that cost is. You work really long hours at your job, no matter what the cost is. And so if you want your legacy to be one of spiritual influence, what do you need to do? What do you need to do now to make that happen? What might God be calling you to pursue for the sake of others? And I want to end this way and remind you that we can live this way. We can live lives of radical, ordinary hospitality because we have already experienced the welcome of Jesus. And we can live lives of sacrificial obedience because we've already received the reward of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we can live lives of selflessness for the sake of others because we have been adopted as sons and daughters of a generous and kind God who loves us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.